I love that song, Crown Him with Many Crowns. If you've ever thought about it, just briefly, we're inferior to Christ, and yet we will be given the opportunity to cast the crowns that we are given at his feet. So that is such a vision of what our hope is and what our our expectation is that one day we will see our Lord and the rewards we receive through a life of faithfulness we will present to him crowning him with many crowns, as it were. So, I hope that's encouraging to you, and it's always an encouraging song to me when I hear it. Let's pray again. Um, While I'm praying, please pray for me. As I've said, I'm not feeling the best, um, so we'll get through it together, um, if the Lord wills. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this new year. I pray that we would live lives pleasing to you, And that this morning, uh, through all the challenges, uh, physical and spiritual, you would make your word shine brightly. We'd give you glory and praise for who you are as we see you revealed in your scriptures. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we really get into the subject matter for what we're talking about today, um, we won't be in Hebrews this morning. Uh, We're taking a break for this Sunday and next. Uh, I wanted to go to 2 Corinthians 4, if you'd go ahead and turn there. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 1. If you'll notice, I've referenced this passage several times on different occasions for different reasons. It's It's a very important passage for what we're doing here. This is what Paul says. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants. For Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. What Paul is saying here is that the frailty or the earthenness of the ministers of the gospel 
is purposeful. That God set it up so that in Paul and in those who would minister the gospel, you would see that the surpassing power doesn't belong to this guy. It's not based on Paul's talents. It's not based on my talents. It's not based on any minister's inherent ability, but the surpassing power belongs to Christ. And this is intentionally so because God desires to be glorified in the work of our salvation. So if we are to accomplish what God desires us to accomplish through the church, it cannot be by strength. It cannot be by us succeeding on the basis of something that appears strong, successful, organized, talented. We have this treasure, right? The idea is jewels, pearls, gold held in jars of clay or earthen vessels. And that's he's referring to himself. These frail human bodies, my limited ability, my limited understanding inside of that is housed the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so under that umbrella, I want to talk about the ministry of the gospel, what North Star Baptist Church can be, I hope can be this year. Um, You could call this sermon the state of the pulpit, or as I said earlier, the Dayquil sermon, if it falls flat. So we can chalk it all up to that. So that's my prayer, that that as we look through these different verses, and, and basically my plan is to go through a few passages that have been very important to me personally uh, for what I understand gospel ministry to be. And in that, so, so, so here's, here's the organi- organization, right? So I'm going to go to a text, we're going to talk about it, and then I'm going to say, here's what I think or what I hope the application of that can be for us as a church. Okay? So, and I'm very anxious about this message. I have a lot of trepidation about this because, for several reasons. One is because I don't know how it's going to be received. Two, I'm not feeling the best. Three, I can't say like I hope to say in every message that this is what the Word of God says absolutely that you should do in your life, period, end of story. These applications I'm going to try to bring out of these different texts is an attempt, if you will, to say, here's how I think we could try to be faithful to this truth. And it may not be right And that causes anxiety for me as a leader. But my prayer is that even if it turns out not to be right a year or two down the road, that we will have tried to be faithful. And I hope that you can see the biblical flavor and ground for what these things are. And so, no, it's not, this isn't going to be My normal style, which is to be exegetical, to focus in on one passage or phrase from Scripture and to spend 30 to 40 minutes talking about that, I think that should be the norm. We've done 10 sermons, if you include the ones that I preached in October, that have been that format. 
And so we're going to do one that's topical. So that's probably an appropriate ratio, right? Less than 10% topical. So with that, I want to go to the first passage. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Second Timothy four. Second Timothy four, one through five. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort and with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is one of the strongest statements that Paul ever makes. If you think about everything that Paul says, if you look at each of his letters, everything he says in the sermons that he preaches, in Acts, in the letters he writes to the different churches, there are many strong statements he makes, but it's arguable, arguable that this is the strongest statement the Apostle Paul ever makes. Listen to this. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. This is triple underscore highlighted bracketed. This is, you know, number 24 point size, you know, on a piece of paper versus 10. This is very bold. Paul wants Timothy to remember this for the rest of his life, especially as it pertains to his ministry. It's likely this is Paul's last letter to Timothy. Uh, he's killed, beheaded in Rome shortly after he writes this for being a believer. But in this, we see Paul's urgency and concern for the church under Timothy's care. In issuing this strong statement, we see the priorities that must be placed on preaching in the context of a local church. This is why, as I referenced earlier, that I think the majority of our time together on Sunday morning should be spent seeking to expose what the Word of God is actually saying. This is why every time we've tried to analyze one phrase, a few verses, last Sunday was an exception, we get went through several verses. It's important that we understand the Word of God, because without it, we don't have anything. 
in the scriptures is where you meet Christ. In the scriptures is where you know who God is, where the borders of acceptable life are, what a life pleasing to him is. It's in here. Without it, we are lost. There's a few other verses that color or fill in this obligation, this commitment, this desire to preach the word. The first would be Jeremiah 20, verse 9. You don't have to turn there. It's just one verse. I can just read it. The prophet says, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more of his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. The prophet Jeremiah suffered a great deal because of his preaching. The Lord came to him and said, Hey, I'm going to set you aside. I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to make you a prophet. You'll be responsible for the building up and the downfall of many kingdoms. And Jeremiah is excited. You know, let's, let's get going with this. And it turns out pretty poorly for him. He preaches faithfully and he is responsible for the building up and the downfall of many kingdoms, but it ends with prison, beatings, and he, he eventually goes into exile with the people. And so he's, he's at a point of crisis and he says, but if, if I were to think, well, I can just stop talking about the Lord I could just stop preaching to the people. I could just stop telling them to repent and then things would go easier for me. He says, I can't because when I decide not to say anything, there's a fire burning in me and I can't keep it in. We preachers are an odd bunch. We have a commission from God to speak of him. That is sometimes not in line with our own personality or desires. Jeremiah was thinking in that moment, I wish that I could want not to do this. I wish that my emotions and my feelings would let me not speak, but it won't. You might say, oh, well, that's just one of the prophets from the Old Testament. If you look at Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 16, he says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid on me. Woe to me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So Paul felt that doom would be his lot if he were silent in regards to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because necessity was laid on him. He felt the heavy burden of necessity to speak the words of God regarding the gospel. And this is another verse. This is one of the more important ones for me personally as it relates to preaching. And there's no, there's no real structure to this. I hope you understand this. This isn't, this isn't me lining out, here are the ten biblical priorities of, of pastoral ministry. These are just verses that, 
through my life have been significant in forming and shaping what I understand ministry to be. So I'm, this is kind of a testimonial, but also hopefully exegetical as we go to each of these passages. John 21, if you want to go ahead and turn there. John 21. This is after Jesus has been raised from the dead. The disciples fled in fear and even, you could say, tried to go back to their old occupation of fishing. Jesus approaches them from the shore, asks them, have you caught anything? No, you remember the whole story and they cast the net on the other side and Peter finally realizes it's Jesus and he jumps off the boat, swims to the shore and leaves the other disciples to haul all the fish in, right? It's not like they didn't want to see Jesus too, but they had their responsibilities. Peter just pulls a a Forrest Gump and goes into the water and swims to the shore. And then on the shore with Jesus, who already had fish there ready for breakfast, right? It's like, well, you know, Jesus, you helped us catch all these fish. Why did you cook the ones that you already have? So Jesus has a sense of humor. But in verse 15, uh, we have kind of a serious and somber exchange. And in this, I think Jesus shows what the priorities of gospel ministry have to be. When they had finished breakfast, this is John 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He could have been gesturing to the fish or to the disciples or to both. Do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you, carry you where you do not want to, want to go. This was to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus could have said anything or chosen to do it in any way to reinstate Peter. Peter had denied him three times at the point of Jesus's trial. I do not know him. I do not know this man. I do not know him. So Jesus chooses to ask three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Jesus' response could have been anything. He he could have said, well, follow my commandments. Right? That's very biblical. We have that from 1 John. And from John, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He could have said, Simon Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Keep my commandments. Or love the Father, glorify the Son. He could have chosen to say anything. Instead, because he knew what Peter's responsibility would be as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, minister to the Jews for the sake of the gospel, he says, feed my sheep. Three times. 
Feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. And Peter understood exactly what this meant. If you turn to Acts chapter 6, just a few pages over. Starting in verse 1. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists or the Greek believers arose against the Hebrews or Jewish believers because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, the apostles, summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, prick from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So here you have an immediate expression. Jesus says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. And this is, this is an actual instance where people are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the apostles say, we should not neglect the preaching of the word of God to serve tables with literal food. So Peter understood exactly what Jesus was asking when he says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep, feed them this food. To feed on the word of God. Why? Why is this so underscored in the biblical testimony? Why is the preaching of the word so central to what we do as believers? First, it has to do with the nature of our hearts. Even as believers. Why should we gather and spend so many man hours on an annual basis sitting under the teaching of God's word? And a lot of it for most of us is probably just reminder of things we already know. Why do we do this? Shouldn't we, as Judas said, be out there tending to the poor? Why do we sacrifice hours and hours and hours every year to just hear the word of God? One of my favorite hymns, <clears throat> Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, says it this way. O oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Do you not feel the draw away from Christ daily? Prone to wonder, I feel it. Even as a believer, there's a pull that the world and the flesh has against the things of the Lord. It is a fight, and if you are not engaged in this fight, you are losing, and you don't even know it. And so the, the writer of this hymn says, Let thy goodness like a fetter, that's a shackle, bind my wandering heart to thee. Essentially asking, be a ball and chain. Don't let me wander. 
And the way that we put ourselves into that submission, the way we put ourselves into that hold is to sit under the consistent and the faithful preaching of God's word. This is for me just as much as it is for you. I was talking to a pastor. He's somewhat renowned in, uh, in, down in Texas. And I was talking to him about ministry. I said, you know, how, how has the Lord blessed you through being a, a pastor and, and all this? And he says, well, honestly, I think the Lord put me into ministry to keep me a Christian. This, I mean, this is for me just as much as it is for the people in my care. Also, the second reason, or the answer to the question, why? First is the nature of our hearts that we're prone to wonder. Second, it's the nature of our confession. This is how Paul says it in 1 Timothy 3.16. He says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. It's not easy. There is a lot that surrounds or is part of or builds together to make whole the confession of our faith. And it's not easy to just believe. Like, oh yeah, like the sun is shining, right? It's not easy like that because he's not visibly here right now. There's a lot that we talked about this two weeks ago requires the eyes of faith to believe that Jesus, this man, Jesus upheld the universe by the word of his power. You don't see that by looking at him. Just perceiving who he is and what he's doing on the earth. If you were to see him where he is now, it might make sense, but we don't get to, we don't get to peer into the courts of glory on a daily basis. So the first reason is the nature of our heart. Second reason, the nature of our confession. Third is the nature of our Savior. This verse might trouble you. Colossians 1. Colossians 1. Verses 24 through 27. Now I rejoice, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh, listen to this, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make, and this is his answer to the question, how, Paul, are you filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Lacking? What in the world, Paul, are you saying? I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for your sake. And here's how I'm doing that, by preaching 
the full counsel of the word of God. The only thing that is lacking in Christ's afflictions for your sake is that you don't get to see Jesus crucified before your face every day. That happened once for all time. And he will never die again. He was raised once. You only need to have victory over the grave once. And we don't get to see that. We weren't there. They were. But we aren't. And this is what Paul is saying. I'm filling up what's lacking. I'm I'm creating in what I'm saying, in the preaching of the word of God, in the preaching of the gospel, I'm creating a visible and powerful representation of what happened that day. So that you would see with the eyes of your heart and understand what God was doing on the cross. So hopefully, as I've gone through these verses, you understand exactly how we would apply this priority. This is number one, should be the most important priority for a church, for any ministry plan, is the preaching, the consistent teaching of the word of God. For these last eight weeks, I hope that that has been shown. I want to make that a priority. I want, when I speak... I want it to be, as Paul says, a washing of the water of the word. And there are three initiatives. And this this is where, you know, the trepidation and the anxiety comes in for me. Okay, because I've explained the doctrine. I've explained the things that hopefully there is no disagreement on because I've made it clear explicitly from the text. Now I'm moving to, here are three different applications for how I, I hope, as your pastor, we can make these things a priority. And the first is, at some point, I've spoken with the deacons about this, I've spoken with the deacons about all these things, but at some point this year, I want us to, as many of us as possible, to go through our statement of faith together. What I hope that looks like is a portion of the Sunday school hour would be spent all together going over our statement of faith, article by article, week by week, and we could split then into smaller groups for discussion. That's my hope. Second initiative under this is to bolster the church covenant. I know the word covenant might cause some trepidation, for some of you, but this is the document that explains what your commitments are to the church and to each other, and what my commitments are to you as a leader. I want to update and revisit that and all embrace that together. And then the third would be to go through all of that afresh and agree to it at the end. And like I said, it's not it's not my way or the highway. Everything is in pencil. Everything I'm saying as an application is not you know written in stone. It's in pencil. But these are the things that, after much prayer and thought, 
I believe the Lord would be pleased with. So it falls flat, it falls flat. And I will have been humbled and you will have been proven right. But it will have stood for an attempt to try and be faithful to this priority of teaching the word that we would all be submitted to the word of God. So why these initiatives? Why, why these three things that I've mentioned? Paul says in Philippians 2.2, we actually looked at this back in October. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Unity of purpose flows from unity of mind and belief. We're to be united as a church family in our purpose and how we spend our resources and our time. We have to be united in mind and what we believe and what we hold to. Here's my commitment to you, getting back to uh, the more central commitment to the preaching. Every time you come into this room, this is, these are my commitments to you. Every time you come into this room or any room to feed on the word of God, I will pour myself into that task. It's not a side project. It's not the back burner. This is the main thing. I will not put myself into the text and make the message about me. That can happen very easily. There can be kind of a story about my experience and, and what I think and what I feel. I'm not going to do that by the Lord's help. I'm not going to try to be cute and funny and clever at the expense of the clear teaching of Scripture. A lot of preachers you hear today, and I don't mean to judge anyone else's ministry, but it's as if the Word of God isn't interesting and compelling, so i got to include humor and funny stories and cute epithets to make it interesting. The Word of God is compelling enough. I don't try to be funny when I can. I will seek to bind your conscience and mine only by what is clearly taught in Scripture. Does that make sense? Do you understand why that's important? I'm only going to seek to bind your conscience and mind by what is clearly taught in Scripture, not by what my convictions are, what I think might be a good way of doing this or that. I don't want you to feel like you are bound in the same degree as the Word of God would put on you as some interpretation that doesn't have clear grounding in the text. I will commit, I commit to speak clearly enough and Christ-centered enough that if you're able to bring your friends and family who do not know the Lord or who may be far from Him, that they will not leave this room without being told what they must do to be saved. And that stands for you as well. As a believer, regardless of where you are with the Lord, I don't want you to leave this room without a clear understanding of what I must do to be saved. What must I do to continue in this process of being saved? And what I ask of you is to prioritize the hearing of the word of God faithfully preach. So that's the first. Prioritize the hearing of the word of God. Second, hold me accountable 
to faithfully preach the word of God. And third, submit yourselves to the word of God faithfully preached. So that's the first category. These next will not be as long because that is the priority. That is the main thing. And from that one first commitment of preaching the word, this is why Paul underscores it so strongly. Preaching the word from that flow all the other priorities. But if you're still in Acts, go back to Acts 6. Verse 4. And I could have chosen a number of verses, but because we just covered verses 1 through 3 in Acts 6, I wanted to pick up where we left off. This is the second priority. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. It's arguable from this passage even though preaching is consistently presented as the primary priority in the New Testament, in terms of even doing that successfully, prayer has to precede it. It's been said that the first century church did not have a prayer meeting, it was a prayer meeting. In all of Acts, there there are so many passages I could go to to show this. In Acts 1.14, these are kind of Luke's summary passages. He says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves, giving themselves over, committing themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. It's impossible to read Acts and not come away with the impression, if you're paying attention, that the early church prayed a lot and often. And they did it together, and that's very important. Personal and small groups Uh, together can pray and focus on the many different and very important needs of the body. But the gathering of the saints together mandates that prayer become of a more and more grand nature and far-reaching implications. Here's the passage that I think has most shaped my heart in understanding this. If you want to go to Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Now, after saying all that, and as magnificent as every word in that paragraph was, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. If you're like me or if you're better than me in terms of prayer, which wouldn't be too difficult, prayer is hard. But you have probably prayed and asked for much. The visions that you have for what North Star could be, what your family could be, what we could be in partnership with other churches in this community, what could happen here for the sake of God's glory and people meeting Jesus who have never known him before in marriages being saved in people being saved. And all the transformations that we could wish to see, Paul says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Do you believe in this God? Is he the God who is there for you? Is he really there asking, commanding even for you to pray to him for these things? We have a word for this, and it's called revival. Not in the, you know, like a thing that we plan and that we organize and we invite a speaker and we have a revival, but God pouring out his spirit on an area or an entire nation where lives are just changed and there's not a real lengthy explanation for it. Richard Owen Roberts, he's a kind of an expert, if you will, on revival. And yes, that's kind of a thing. Here's what he says about praying for revival. The vast majority of Christians seem never to pray for revival at all. Of the handful who pray for it, only a small percentage pray with regularity. Among those who pray with regularity, a minority pray as if they were desperately in earnest. And unfortunately, even some among this slim number are growing weary of asking and are abandoning their divinely appointed task while the hand of God is still preparing the blessing. This is strange conduct in view of the fact that there is little else besides praying that men can do to bring revival. Prayer is the single most important task God has assigned men in their earthly pilgrimage. Prayer is so vital to the human walk that Jesus himself devoted extended periods as much as 40 days and nights at one time to it. Scriptures abound with commands, encouragements, and invitations to pray, as well as with illustrations of prayer. This prayer for a revival must go on unceasingly. It must shape and affect all of life. It must become a burden of major proportions. It is a duty and a privilege not to be abandoned. Prayer for revival must also become a major part of the prayer life of the local church. 
It ought to find its way into public services of worship. It ought to dominate the prayer meetings of the congregation. Prayer for revival in the local church must begin with the focus on the spiritual needs of that fellowship and must include a willingness, even a heartfelt desire to be broken before the Lord. As the Lord begins to stir and move, this prayer for revival must be extended to include the entire body of Christ. Isaiah says it this way, or the Lord speaks about prayer this way through Isaiah. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night that they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest. Until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. God appoints people to pray in order to give him no rest until he finally answers and brings what we are seeking through revival. It's difficult. Paul says in Romans 15. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together. It's the same word or root that we get the word agonize. Strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So the application of this, I want to have a weekly prayer meeting. Again, this is, this is the transition where I don't know if this is exactly what the Lord wants, but this is an attempt to try and be faithful to what I'm seeing here and what should be a priority for a local church. I've already announced it multiple times, but Wednesday night prayer meeting. This is the vision I have for it. It's not just a time for us together and share our hurts, though I want it to be that as well. But that we, appointed by God as watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem, as it were, to give God no rest until He brings that which we seek. And if you can't make it on Wednesday nights, we will find ways, we'll help you find ways to gather and pray. And again, if it fails, it fails, but at least we'll be trying to do something to be faithful to that. Lastly, Ephesians 4 Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So there's a lot of freedom in the Christian life. We call it Christian liberty. To live your life as you see fit, as long as you're not in sin, as long as you're seeking the kingdom, you can live out your life through the millions of different decisions that you have to make. 
that's not really so for preachers, for teachers, for ministers, because the how and the what and the why are all defined by Scripture for what we're doing. And the main goal or the main objective is to equip you. We have been given, the ministers, the teachers, the preachers, they've all been given to the church to equip the saints, to equip you for the work of ministry. The author of Hebrews says it this way, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I don't share this verse to emphasize the obedience part, but to highlight the fact that that is a terrifying verse to me. That on the day of judgment, I will have to answer for each person under my care as a pastor. For your souls. And so with that, with that very somber understanding and these questions, think, think of this. Did I, did I, these might be the questions that are asked of me. Did I equip you for the work of ministry? Did I press you all towards maturity in Christ? Did I lead by example in the new life of Christ? And we'll be coming up to this passage soon in our study of Hebrews. This one has colored and shaped my understanding of ministry for years. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I owe this kind of exhortation to you. You owe this kind of exhortation to your brothers and sisters. We're to be equipping each other. And the leaders among us, including me and your deacons, we have been tasked with this responsibility of equipping you for the work of ministry. And just very quickly, I know we've gone kind of long today. There are four initiatives under this heading to try and organize around this goal of equipping you for the work of ministry. The first is, my, my vision for the Wednesday night meeting is that we will have a fellowship meal preceding our time of prayer. I said, when y'all brought me up here to interview and we had the town hall back in October, I said in answer to one question, I don't remember the exact question, but I said there's no substitute for spending time together as the body of Christ. And I know there are many instances and many ways and places where There are gatherings and spending time together, but all the more we should be spending time with one another. The indication is the early church got together almost daily. And I know our schedules won't allow for that in this modern world. But to have a fellowship meal, a time where we get together and we just celebrate the fact that we are one in Christ. We look like we actually love each other. Spend time together consistently and so that iron sharpening iron can happen. Second, uh, once a month, in, in lieu of the emphasis on prayer, 
My hope is that we would have a hospitality meal on the Wednesday nights. And again, this all in pencil, but I just want to give you a vision of what I'm thinking and what my prayer is and what my hope is. And it may look nothing like this. But at least to have a time where we can focus on hospitality and invite our neighbors, our non-believing friends and family to a time of fellowship that's not threatening where you can feel comfortable inviting anyone regardless of where they are in their walk. Third, I do want to offer leadership training opportunities. If you're interested in that, come talk to me. It's very difficult to grow up in a church and feel like you've been called or are drawn to some type of leadership. Because usually you're seen as a troublemaker. Because when you're early on in the journey to try and figure out what it means to minister or to serve, you can rub shoulders the wrong way with the people who are already in leadership. And you can feel, and I'm kind of speaking from a personal testimony like You can feel like the only way to pursue it is to move outside of the context of the local church, maybe go to seminary, Bible college, and learn what all that means, and then re-enter the life of the church as a leader or a minister. That's the way it usually works. I don't want that to be the case here. I want the training of the next generation of leaders to be something that is part of our DNA as a church. And I want you to feel helped and blessed in your pursuit of leadership and maturity. Lastly, I want to end on this. I want to offer support and encouragement for the many different things that you see and want to do. My ask or my request there is that you be patient with me. And I, you know, I may have disappointed a lot of you already, I don't know. But as we figure this thing out together, I pray that you be patient with me and there may be hundreds of things that, that you all see together that we should do this or we could be doing this or we could interact this way or we could start doing this. I want to bless and encourage those things. But you have to be patient with us, your leaders, especially me. I'm new here as we figure out how we can in a unified manner pursue those goals. Because equipping you for ministry isn't about me telling you what to do so much as it is me encouraging you and supporting you and doing the things that God has laid on your heart. The way I've heard it said is, I'm not here to reach your neighbor for Jesus. I'm here to help you reach your neighbor for Jesus. Your spiritual gifts should have a place to flourish here. And that's my commitment to you. And what I ask is that you just pursue that in patience and unity. So with that, I'll close. Let's pray. And just be in prayer for your church. And hopefully in February we'll begin the prayer meeting. And we'll see God do amazing things.